Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. So glad that you are here this morning. Why don't you turn around and say hello to someone you didn't come with. Let them know that you are glad that they are here. Church isn't the same without you. Hey, online, if you're streaming in, we're so glad that you can be with here. Uh, be here with us online. That was the most clunky way possible of saying that, but you get the gist. If we haven't met yet, my name is Jono. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Uh, and today is our second week. Thank you, Izzy. Can you join me in thanking Izzy and the team? How great are they? Uh, today is our second week in, in a series that, that we have titled uh, A House of Prayer. Who was here last week? It's good. If you weren't here last week, we have most of the sermon on SoundCloud and none of the sermon on YouTube because we had some tech things break, uh, but we've fixed most of them. Uh, so just, just go, just trust me, the start of the sermon was good and then where it picks up is good too. You'll just have to just, just take my word for it. Uh, but but we're, really, we're looking at this idea of a, a house of prayer. And really the, the, the question or the, the thing that we're looking at is what does it mean, what does it look like to, to be a, a people of prayer? And so last week, really, we started with, with the question, which I think is probably a good question to start with, what is a house of prayer, right? And we looked at, at David, and we looked at, at Jesus, and the story of, of David's tabernacle, a tent of prayer and worship that transformed the nation, and, and of Jesus coming to, to tabernacle, to live, to dwell with us, transforming our access to God, that we could be a people who live in intimacy that Jesus won for us, that we could be a people, and if you remember nothing else, hopefully you remember this, that we could be a people who gather for worship and prayer, but then scatter, continuing to pray by recognizing the face of Jesus in our friends, in our neighbors, in our co-workers, and in strangers. And so today, I really want to pick up where we, where we left off. If we're to be this house of prayer, this people who gather intentionally to, to direct our attention towards God, not just in a moment, but, but collectively, but also individually, that we continue to do that in our day-to-day, Monday-to-Saturday living, how do we restore, how do we bring intentional value to, to prayer in our lives? To, to, to use the language of Scripture, how do we learn to tabernacle? And so today, to continue that, that, that question, the, this topic, I, I want to tell you another story. This one, it's a story, again, in three parts, because the best stories are told in three parts, right? And also, it's a quite a convenient sermon structure. But, you know, it's, it's also because storytelling. Uh, three parts. I want to tell you a story of fidelity, a borrowed prayer, and an opportunity. Why don't you bow your heads with me, and, uh, and let's pray. God, we thank you that you're here. God, I thank you for, for even the way in which we've, we've felt you draw close, that we've drawn close to you. God, you're always close. By the way in which we've made an, an opportunity intentionally to, to draw into to what you're doing and who you are. God, I pray for those of us who've walked in today, who've, who've had a week that's, that's beaten up, us up a little bit, maybe even a month, maybe it's been a, a while, things have been tough, that, that you receive us in your grace and your mercy and your rest. God, for those of us who are walking in on, on top of the mountain, who are having a great time, that you rejoice with us. God, that no matter where we are, no matter how we're feeling, that you meet us as we are. That we don't need to put on a face, that we don't need to, to transform ourselves to be loved by you, but that you love us. God, I pray today as we look at your words, that it would be your words and not mine. 
that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that we would leave here having encountered something of, of who you are better for it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 8, a, a woman is thrown face first in the dirt in front of a rabbi. And, and only moments earlier, she was living carefree and alive, smiling to herself as she stole away from her house to his, a, a route that she knew well. Her husband was at work and, and the kids were at school and, and she was with him. You know, she never saw it coming. On her wedding day, she would never have imagined that she'd be unfaithful, but, but she felt alive, she felt excited, she felt happy with him until she wasn't. As her secret life became considerably less secret, as she's ripped from her lover's bed, barely clothed, and marched into the temple courts, thrown at a rabbi's feet, and the accusation is brought. Moses says to stone her, are you going to disagree with the law? You know, it was the perfect trap. The rabbi had to choose in front of everyone, and there she's lying face first in the dirt, cheek pressed against the ground. The carefree thrill of a moment ago is now replaced with a heavy blanket of shame as thoughts start to race through her mind. How long have they known? And, and who else knows? And who's gonna pick up the kids? And will they see? And what does it really feel like, actually feel like when they stone you? And Jesus doesn't say anything right away. Instead, he, he stoops down and he begins to draw in the dirt. I imagine close enough that she could hear the sound of his finger scratching. And, and just when the silence had hung so long that the woman is about to open her eyes, Jesus stands up and he says, yeah, all right. Yeah, go ahead and stone her. But whichever one of you is without sin, make sure you're the one that throws the first rock. And the silence hangs until she hears thud, thud, thud. You know, she must have, have flinched when she heard the first one hit the ground, but then shortly afterwards, she would have realized that, that they're not throwing stones, they're dropping them. And after everyone else has walked away, she finally looks up and there's only one man there, the rabbi. And, and he's looking at her not with hate or with scorn, but, but with love. And he says to a woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I. Go on your way and leave your sin behind you. And what I love is that this is the story she would have gone on telling forever, that this place of her greatest fear and shame is transformed into a place of mercy and grace, this unforgettable day. Because that's the type of God, that, that's the type of author that God is, right? He doesn't edit, he doesn't remove things from our story, but he repurposes and he redeems. And, and what would have been impossible for her to know at this moment is that the rest of her life, the real work, the real fight that that involves had just begun. Here she is in this beautiful moment, but, but the real fight, the, the rest of the, the life is every ordinary day after the unforgettable one. She knows all too well what it is to be distracted from a life of, of fidelity and purpose. She's had it happen to her once before, and, and we've all got moments like that in our life, don't we? Moments like this woman, who, who profound moments that reshape us. 
That there are highs and lows in the spiritual life. There are supernatural encounters and fiery passion and, and healing forgiveness. And there is loneliness and grief and crisis. But whether high or low, however we encounter Jesus, it's the many ordinary days after the passionate encounter. It's the, it's the fidelity, the faithfulness in day-to-day life that we can find underwhelming and disenchanting. You know, something that we, maybe we don't talk about so often in church is that if we're honest, the most common condition of a churchgoer of, on any given Sunday of any one of us is, is general spiritual boredom. It's not that we don't love God. It's not that God's not amazing. It's not that we haven't had encounters with Him in profound moments and hard moments, but it's that in the day-to-day life between those moments, what do we do? How do we abide? How do we remain? We have the exhilaration of a mountaintop or valley experience, but that we is thin and we find ourselves reluctantly dragging our feet along the narrow path behind Jesus. Just barely stifling a yawn. You know, Ronald Rollheiser says this. He says, the single greatest obstacle of, to sustaining a life of prayer is simple boredom and, and the sense that nothing meaningful is happening. But that doesn't mean that we are regressing in prayer. It often means the opposite. See, what I want to talk to us about this morning is the fact that the real fight of faith comes on all of the ordinary days after the climactic moment because of what we all know but are really too polite to admit. Fidelity is boring. Faithfulness is boring. Right? Fidelity, faithfulness is rich and it is satisfying and it meets the deep longing, the deep need of our soul in a way that surface urges could never touch. But, but fidelity is also boring most of the time. And so that leaves us with a few bad options for, for writing out the remainder of our, our life of faith, right? We, we could go through it, kind of go through the motions, passionless and, and half pretending, things that once hold, held significance we now just do out of a routine observation. We could obsess about recapturing the breakthrough that once was. We talked last week about Darlene Sheck and the fact that she's the only anointed worship leader who's ever existed in all of time, right? Well, if, if only we sung these songs again, or if, if only I was in this place again, if only I was at this age and this stage, then God would move. And, 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 and we obsess over chasing it, even if we have to manufacture it, manipulating ourselves to some level. Or we, we wander away disappointed. Well, God felt close and God felt real once, but I don't know what happened. It's just not the same anymore. And so here we are, spiritually bored and constantly distracted. Glad you came to church this Sunday morning. <laughs> you know, the, we like to think of ourselves as modern people, right, with modern problems, like, ah, oh, we've got all these. But, but really, the truth is, is that fidelity is the oldest and truest story that it's at the heart of the Bible. The Bible at its core is, is a love story. And we see this captured in, in a single moment, like when an adulterous woman is thrown on her face at the feet of Jesus and he defies cultural expectations to love her in a dangerous way. But we also see it all throughout the overarching narrative of the Bible that God from a place of love creates humanity. But that we take this love and we spurn him choosing to be our own God and yet God is willing to pursue us. Not, not to force us back to him, but to always make a way for us to come back to him if we would choose. That God comes to Abraham and Sarah and essentially says, I love you and I always will. I'm not making a deal. 
This is not a you do this and I will do that. I am making you a promise, a covenant. I love you. End of story. If you want to live in that love, if you want to be loved by me, then you can choose to. But whether you choose to or not, I am a God who will consistently, persistently love you. And sometimes like the children of, of Abraham, they, they love God. Sometimes the nation of Israel, a representation of what is to become the church, they love God and they are faithful, but, but often the nation turns from God. And when they do, it's, it's frequently depicted as adultery or, or infidelity. The Old Testament needs like a, a PG rating, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and the book of Lamentations, they all use the language of an unfaithful partner who's gone after other lovers. And that's about as sanitized as I can make it, right? The, the Bible describes it in, in much more sultry language than many of us would be used to hearing in church. Like we're like, hey, let's put scripture to song. Maybe not those scriptures, right? Let's not put a, it's, we would literally need an explicit rating. I would love to see that, like an explicit Christian album. They're like, why is your album explicit? We're quoting Bible and some of it's gnarly. <laughs> the temptation to go into details is so strong, but we won't, right? It's a moment of strength in Jesus. All this to say that the theme of covenant between God and his people is not a passing metaphor. It is the overarching theme. See, the, the biblical story begins with perfect love at the center of the plot, and, and the conflict introduced by sin is a twisting and a warping of that love into something lesser. But the, the hinge point, the, the, the central point of the narrative is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That the wound opened up by infidelity, by unfaithfulness, by choosing to be our own gods, which is what Adam and Eve did in the garden, is mended by a love that will never give up. And Jesus, on the final night of his life, says this to his followers, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. See, I think one of the greatest questions in following Jesus is, is how? How do we keep choosing Jesus in all of the ordinary days after the breakthrough? How do we remain in that love? Which brings me in, in kind of a round, sweeping motion to today. And, and how that fits with the moment that we are in as a church, because the way that we remain in love, I believe, is, is prayer. Because prayer is about love. St. Augustine says this, he says, true prayer, sorry, true whole prayer is nothing but love. Love is, you know, I think we would all know this if we've been in love. Love is easy at the first and at the last. I'm assuming at the last, I haven't got there yet. But love is easy at the first. Right, love is easy, it's effortless in the honeymoon stage. When, when you're infatuated with each other, when you're touchy and talkative and, and smitten and, and looking at old couples who have been in love, who have, who have persisted, who have cherished that for a long time, it, it's like breathing for them. I think of my grandparents and the love that they share. It's a, it's a love that, that has matured over decades into, into something that has been tested and proven. Love is easy at the first and the last. But all those years in between, love in the middle. Love in the middle of building a career, of raising kids, of, of establishing a life and facing trials. Those are the long years where love has to be worked at and fought for. You know, the, the, those are, the, there are the early years where infatuation, but, 
but that infatuation has to mature into the couple in in an effortless union. And something happens in that space in between. Those are the years where love is won and, and lost. See, I say that because I think prayer is like love, and, and just like love, prayer comes easy at the first and the last. Right? Prayer comes easy for the sinners and the saints. God, I realize how much you love me for the very first time, and all I want to do is talk to you. And God, I have been walking for, with you for so long, and I have built the discipline of talking to you. But in between... In between, prayer is hard, but it's those, those years in between that are the important ones because prayer is all about relationship, which means that fidelity is the only context in which can truly flourish. Today, I want to tell you a story of fidelity, a borrowed prayer, and an opportunity. In 2004, a movie came out that changed the course of history. We all know what movie I'm talking about, but for the sake of the room, I'll, I'll just I'll say what everyone is thinking, and we all know that that movie is The Notebook. <laughs> like, I mean, come on, you can hate it all you want, but you know, it changed the course of history, right? Like, suspenders were not cool, and then for a couple of years, they were still not cool, but everyone was wearing them, because uh, Ryan Gosling, you know, we, we were after a little bit of something. The Notebook changed the, the course of history. We've all seen it. And we've all wept like babies. I don't want any argument, right? You can be like, no, I didn't. Yeah, you did. You're just lying to me to save face. Or you're a robot, in which case, or a lizard person. One of the two of those, right? Either way, when the aliens invade, the way that we will figure out, are you human or not, is we'll play them in the notebook and we'll just watch the reaction, right? And, and I think 20 years is enough time to watch it. So spoiler uh, alert or warning. I realize some of you haven't been alive for 20 years. You're like, I've never seen it, Right? Dave, don't pretend you don't know it. I know you watch that on a monthly basis. You're like, Dave, what are you doing this second Monday? Why don't you come to prayer? I can't. I'm watching the notebook. Sorry. So, <laughs> call me up. But uh, the, the notebook, you, you can't. I, I apologize if I am ruining it, but um, there you go. It's not as bad as Steve Graham likes to talk about the plots of movies like two weeks after they've come out. It doesn't land well for the college students. They're like, Steve, that came out two weeks ago. Oh, I don't know. You haven't seen it. Uh, and he doesn't give spoiler warnings. Anyway. The notebook ends with the main characters are, are now old. They're old and, and they're in hospital. And Noah, who's the title character, uh, the, the kind of guy in the relationship, he sneaks into Ali's room and, and, and he lies down with her on her hospital bed. He, he holds her hand and, and they fall asleep, this time for good together. The movie ends with them dying, still in love, still holding on to each other. And, and I challenge anyone to to watch that with a heart beating in their chest and not feel a little bit of something, if not just like disgust with the sheer emotion being displayed. This is not, it makes me uncomfortable, right? Because something in that scene expresses a, a deep felt need that all of us want, want intimacy, that all of us want companionship, that all of us want, want love, be it romantic or platonic, that there's something in us that, that wants to see others and be seen ourselves. You know, in, in, in my opinion, which is entirely unbiased, I think a close second for the romance of The Notebook is a romance that happened just a little bit after that, which was M, M and I's romance. Yeah. Sometimes you just get such great brownie points when you're preaching, right? I, there are some comparisons, though, right? Like, I mean, in Wellington, if you ever kiss outside, 
you're basically bound to be kissing in the rain, which happens a lot in the notebook. So, and, and for a, you know, I can't build a house, but, but in the early 2000s, I, I did wear suspenders sometimes, unironically, and I, I looked quite good in them, I will say. And, and I think we'd all agree that, you know, it's just an impartial observation. I'm a dead ringer for Ryan Gosling. So <laughs> you can see the similarities there. Same, same, same. You can't lie in church, guys. This is sinning. God sees you. <laughs> See, but I, when I knew I wanted to propose to, to Em, I had heard the story about the 10-cow wife. Like, John, be careful. You said cow and wife in the same sentence. You just, you just made some brownie points and you're going to destroy them all. Just go with me, right? The story of the 10-cow the wife, to, to summarize it, is, is, is a man wanted to marry a woman at a time in history when that involved paying a, a bride price. And so he went to her parents to, to bargain for her hand in marriage. And they said, yep, sure thing, you can marry her. The bride price we're asking for is, is five cows. But rather than agree, the, the man insisted on paying 10 cows, all that he possibly could for his bride, because he saw her as invaluable. And, and the story goes that from that day on, the woman was changed because she knew what she was worth to this man that she carried herself differently. There was something different in her. And, and as a 19, 20-year-old, I, I heard that story and it really spoke to me. And so I decided that I wanted, to, I wanted M to always be reminded of how much I loved her. And, and so I saved for an engagement ring that would be above and beyond anything that she'd expect. Now, now was I being suckered into the wedding industrial complex? Undoubtedly, right? I was being made a sucker of by commercialism, but my heart was in the right place, right? Looking back, I would have done things maybe a little bit differently, but, but the heart motivation was, was great. But, but here's the thing. If, if all I ever did was buy a fancy ring, a large romantic gesture that, that doesn't make for much of a happy, healthy relationship. If every time I didn't do the little things that matter, I said, but M, look at your finger. Look at the, I sacrificed. Is that not enough that you know that you're worth 10 cows to me? Like, Why are you calling it? See, relationships are not just made in the big moments. In fact, much more than the big moments, fidelity is made of the small things. Song of Solomon's chapter two, verse 15 says this. Catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love. So he's referring to, to a common practice, which was these, these small kind of desert foxes, which would run rampant throughout vineyards in that day and would destroy the vineyards. That one of the best ways of looking after your vineyard wasn't just big, dramatic gestures. It was the day-to-day -day small maintenance. Here's what I'm saying, that any relationship is won or lost in the little things, in the day-to-day -day fidelity. And the reason that the notebook starts with romance and ends with mature love, the reason that it skips all of those years in the middle, is the same reason that, that any fairy tale finishes with the romance. They finally get together and it's happily ever after, roll credits, because from that moment forward, all of those years in between are filled with nothing but ordinary fidelity and fidelity is boring. But when we see the fruit of fidelity, when we see an elderly couple still in love, when we see the relationship between two people who have prized each other, who have prioritized each other over a period of time, the fruit of fidelity is anything but boring. It's moving. It's, it's compelling. Tyler Staden puts it this way in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. He says, Jesus is saying, here's my secret. Pray with the heart of a lover and the discipline of a monk. 
That's how you choose fidelity. And when you do, it quenches your desire in such a satisfying way that everything else becomes the boring part. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously offered some advice at the weddings that he officiated in a way that only Bonhoeffer could, right? This would not float for anyone else. But there at the altar, he would say to the, to the couple, today you are young and very much in love and you think that your love can sustain your marriage. It cannot. To which I'd be like, we should get a different celebrant. Is it too late for a different? Is there anyone else here who wants to do this? This is not what we're going for. Today you are young and very much in love and you think that your marriage, do you think that your love can sustain your marriage? It can't. Let your marriage sustain your love. See, prayer is about love. Prayer is about intimacy. Prayer is about relationship with God. And that means that it cannot be sustained on fluttery feelings and and good intentions and spontaneous moments alone. Those are not bad things in any way. I'm not saying we are emotionless robots, but prayer needs a context. It needs an intentional structure, not from legalism, but to sustain, to grow, to mature that love. And this isn't a new idea. Throughout history, people of faith have always had intentional rhythms of prayer that that grounded their relationship with God. This is the entire plot of the book of Daniel. Daniel was taken from Israel from a place in which he can actively uh, practice his faith to Babylon, to a, a pagan, different context. And Daniel refuses to denounce Yahweh in a Babylonian culture. And so living in this foreign empire, he kneels down three times a day to pray. And, and, and it is that ordering of his life, it's, it's that intentional fidelity in a foreign land, that is the offense that gets him thrown into the lion's den that he would dare to maintain a consistent commitment to God. You know, the book of Acts is is essentially the the history book of the early church, and it's incredible as we read through it, noting every reference to daily prayer. I encourage you to do it if you've got like a couple of hours spare, but highlighting phrases like, as we were going to the place of prayer, not just the, the regularity of how often they do it, but what happens as they live out this commitment to a, a, a lived real fidelity to daily prayer. Some examples, Acts chapter 2, the flaming tongues of Pentecost descend while the believers were gathered for morning prayer. In Acts 3, Peter and John performed the first miraculous healing after the resurrection on their way to midday prayer. In Acts 4, the foundations of the temple shook in response to the church's ordinary prayer gathering. In Acts chapter 10, Peter receives a vision that the gospel was not just for the Jewish people, but for the entire world. And the family of Jesus expanded to all nations, a pivotal moment that changed the trajectory of our lives. And that happens while he was praying his midday prayer. Even in Acts 2, we read the summary of the church's kind of beginning, its inception. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The, the Greek word that's translated prayer there is actually a plural word, so it's better said and to prayers, referring to a fixed rhythm of daily prayer. And what followed this devotion to prayer? Well, we already said, right? The early, church, the early church's supernatural life included signs and wonders, included wild generosity, countercultural community, and a daily response of people coming to faith in Jesus. It almost seems like when we prioritize prayer in the church, we get the kingdom in the city. That was referencing last week, just in case you were wondering what I was doing there. You can go back and have a listen. So my question is, how do we restore or or how do we bring an intentional value to to prayer in our lives? How do we learn to tabernacle? I want to suggest 
And it's not a suggestion that anyone's going to be like, yeah, that sounds exciting. I'm really amped for that. But I want to suggest that we start with fidelity, that we start with regular prayer, a a daily rhythm, whatever that looks like for you. I'm not wanting to prescribe this is what you need to do, but I am encouraging to say that relationship only ever grows in the context of intentional fidelity. Then maybe if you're here today and you can relate to that feeling of spiritual boredom, you look at your life and there's kind of mountains and valleys, but if you're honest with yourself and you look at the way you are living, there's not an intentional pursuit of prayer. I want to say that maybe it shouldn't be such a surprise that relationship with God is not growing in your life because there isn't a a center of fidelity. Peter Gregg of 24-7 Prayer has a great quote. He says, the only right way to pray is honest and often. But I think when when we think about it, the question that we come to is, how do we pray? Maybe that's the question that's jumping to your mind in this moment. You're like, yeah, Jono, if I got up 10 minutes earlier to try and pray, I I can do that. But if we're honest, all that happens is I go from sleeping in my bed to sleeping in the chair that I'm meant to be praying in and feeling guilty about it. So why don't I just stay in bed for a little bit longer and just avoid the guilt altogether? That's a better solution for me. I like how that works better. I see you, right? I, I, I feel that with you because often we have finally carved out space for God. Space for fidelity, space for prayer in a quiet time or, or on our commute while doing dishes or, or on a run. When we turn to prayer, the reality is, is that it can be boring and hard to focus and we get distracted and we often just end up worrying in God's general direction. So how do we pray? Which, which brings us to Jesus. Because when the disciples saw Jesus pray, it was like the ending of the notebook. They saw intimacy. They saw love. They saw something that they wanted. They saw the fruit of fidelity. And they wanted it so badly that they said to him, teacher, would you teach us to pray like that? Teach us to pray. And Jesus responds with what we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in praying this prayer, Jesus is doing something that the 12 instantly see and that we have no idea of. He's borrowing a prayer. What what does that mean, right? What are you you saying? The Lord's Prayer was not entirely original to Jesus. Johnny, this sounds like heresy. You're going to get struck by a light. Just go with me, okay? I promise. The, The Lord's Prayer was not entirely original to Jesus. It was something, it wasn't just something that he was rattling off spontaneously. Jesus was adapting the open lines, the opening lines of what's called the Kaddish, which reads, magnified and sanctified may his great name be in the world he created by his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days. Take a look up here. These are the two compared, right? The Lord's Prayer and the Kaddish. Kaddish was a common Hebrew prayer that was prayed on a daily basis in the temple, at least once of those three times, morning, midday, and and afternoon, evening prayer. And Jesus takes the bones of the Kaddish and he makes it much more personal. They ask, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus responds, pray to God more intimately than you think you're allowed to. Next week, Penny's gonna be looking at the Lord's Prayer and she's gonna unpack this and dive into this a little bit more. So I'm not gonna look at the intimate father aspect of this prayer. But what I do wanna point out is another aspect of the Kaddish that we miss. It's a regular form of prayer. It's a prayer prayed on a regular, daily basis. It's disciplined because fidelity is the soil that love grows in. 
It's an intentional, disciplined prayer. Jesus is taking something that they do all the time and he is transforming it. What I'm saying is it's a borrowed prayer. The New Testament scholar Scott McKnight argues that verse two can be translated, whenever you pray, recite this. That that Jesus is tapping into this first century Jewish custom of of praying memorized or pre-made prayers. Eugene Peterson observes, he says this, spontaneous spontaneities, sorry, offer one kind of pleasure. If we go to the next slide, we've got the, the quote up there. Spontaneities offer one kind of pleasure and taste of sanctity. Repetitions, another equally pleasurable and holy. We don't have to choose between them. We, we must not choose between them. They are the polarities of prayer. The repetitions of our Lord's prayer and David's give us firm groundings for the spontaneities, the, the flights, the explorations, the meditations, the sighs, and the groans that go into prayer without ceasing. Again, to, to quote Tyler Staden as the, as the band joins me, I'm almost done. Prayer is like jazz. Jono, where are you going with all of this, right? Like we need to pray on a regular basis and, and Jesus like stole a prayer, which feels sacrilegious. And now you're saying prayer, like this is, you need it to work on the sermon longer. It makes no sense. The threads are not following me. Prayer is like jazz. Jazz music is, is improvisational which is a word that I didn't say very well, but you get the gist of what I'm saying. Jazz bands, when they're playing, they don't, they don't stare at sheet music. They get lost in the music. But the interesting thing about jazz, though, is it's, it's one of the hardest types of, of music to play. Not many people can just jump on a trumpet and, and let fly. The, the heart might be willing, but behind that freedom of improvisation is a wealth of knowledge and hours of practice. Jazz bands don't stare at the sheet music, not because they don't need it, but because they already know it. See, prayer is like jazz. And sometimes it's helpful to go back to the sheet music, to embrace liturgy, to embrace pre-made prayers. Think of how we develop communication, learning to talk. We mirror those who already know. Learning to write, we trace letters. It's a great way to learn. It's a great way to grow. And we never stop growing. And one of the wells that I've found in my life, something that has blessed me is that when I'm feeling down or unwell or tired, praying a psalm or or working my way through the Lord's prayer or singing a sung prayer, it helps me to embrace fidelity. When when I find that the words to, when I'm struggling to find the words to express something, when I'm struggling to articulate what I wanna say or feel permission to feel something before God, finding the words that someone else has written and starting there is such a blessing. And of course, there are limitations to this type of prayer. It cannot only be this, right? We need to be intentional. We need to slow down and engage. It's it's all too easy to fly through a written prayer, mumbling the words and praying nothing. That's not what I'm saying we do. If we just pray the Lord's Prayer, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, kingdom come, you will be done. Okay, there we go. Jono said, I'm gonna feel closer to God now. Not what I'm saying. Right, but an intentional moving through it, if we open our hearts to God, what in? opportunity to place in our mouths the words that have been prayed throughout history and it's our opportunity again it's not something we have to do it's not something that God loves us more if we do or do not do but I think as a as an expression of church as an evangelical church so often we get so preoccupied with the flights of fancy and the spontaneous moments which are beautiful and we want to to value them we want to create space for them 
But sometimes we forget the foundation from which those moments can organically arise. That sometimes to be able to say the words spontaneously to God that you wanna say, you need to have been earlier in the week, the month, the year, somewhere in your life, having been working through the words that someone else has already said. Jesus, when He was praying, often quoted Scripture. I wonder when we pray, how often do we bring the words of God to God and say, God, I'm struggling with this, but you say. See, what does it look like for us to live a life of fidelity, of intentional commitment in which our relationship with God can grow and thrive? First of all, it looks like that intentionality. But secondly, once we're doing that, in the middle of trying to do that, and if we're honest, sometimes feeling bored or distracted or unsure about what we're trying to say or trying to whip ourselves into some sort of spiritual frenzy, maybe instead we need to turn to what Jesus teaches us to do and pray something that someone has written for us to, like Jesus, simply borrow a prayer. And so some resources. This is an opportunity, quite practically, some things that you could think about engaging with. Number one, the Lord's Prayer. The early church prayed this three times a day. Or the Psalms, what were called the prayer book of the Bible because most of them were designed not to be read, but to be prayed. Maybe it's singing, putting on some worship music, but not just tuning out and thinking, man, that sounds nice when that person sings that, but, but engaging in it. There is a power to prayer set to music. We don't think of, of modern worship music as liturgical, but it is. It's essentially a pre-written prayer that we are all praying together to God. That's what we are meant to be doing when we're singing worship. And we, we do ourselves a, a disservice if we disengage from that and just sing the song in a routine way. We become the, the very types of institutions that, that we were set up in rebellion against. Oh, they just mumble those words and go through the motions. We'll never do that. And there we are in church, mumbling the words and going through the motions. Maybe it's not about the thing we do, but the heart with which we do it. Maybe it's even formal liturgy, something like the Book of Common Prayer or apps like Lectio 365, which I use every day and I wanna say is probably the most transformational thing I've done in the last couple of years in terms of my relationship with God. Taking the moment to start my daily devotions with prayers and intentions that someone else primes me with that I can then move through them. See, these are all examples of, of talking to God with borrowed prayers because prayer is like jazz. And I'm done. We don't have to do any of it, but, but it's an opportunity. But I want to finish with this one reference. On his knees in Gethsemane, under such strain that he was sweating blood, Jesus begins to pray, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. My father, if it is not possible for this cup, his coming crucifixion, to be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. I wonder, do those words sound familiar to you? See, Jesus' garden prayer in that moment of anguish, to me, bears a striking resemblance to the way that He taught His disciples to pray years earlier. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Between those two prayers, the circumstances could not have been more different, and yet the movements, the words, the intention behind it could not have been more similar. When things get hard, we like to think that we rise to the occasion, but, but more realistically, we live to our defaults. We fall to the level of our preparation. That's human nature. 
and Jesus in the garden is prepared. And in the hardest moment, he prays a prayer that he has prayed a hundred, a thousand times before. My Father, may your will be done. Now, none of us are ever gonna carry the weight of sin. We won't go through what Jesus went through, but we'll have ups and downs. We'll have good moments and hard moments and moments of boredom in between. And so how can we prepare well? Not just for when things get hard, but for when things just get kind of same, same. The memorable moments of spontaneous prayer always emerge from a rooted, disciplined life of prayer. And so my encouragement, my question for us this morning is simply, how can we embrace fidelity? Again, Ronald Rollheiser says, we show our fidelity to God, not in our feelings, but in our commitments. Well, maybe for you today, it looks like building some intentional rhythms, some fidelity. Because if you're honest with yourself, you need a moment on a daily basis. If you're anything like me, it needs to be more than daily to steal away and remind yourself of who you are and who God is or else you'll forget. We start to believe the subtle lie that this small temporary kingdom is the ultimate one, is all that there is, and that the sum total is is our doing and producing, that we are what we manage to, to make and do and what people think about us, and that is a lie, and we need to redirect our affections and our thoughts, our doing, the very center of who we are, that we would keep eternity in focus. Fidelity is the soil in which love grows, and pray like jazz. Embrace the spontaneous but realize that the spontaneous comes from practicing the sheet music. Borrow a prayer. Find a balance. Be humble enough to realize that maybe all that you need to say to God and the way that you need to engage with God is not found in the sum total of your being, but that God has given you the history of the church, the blessing of Scripture. People who have poured their hearts out that we might pick it up and say, God, me too. I feel seen, I feel found in this prayer and God, I bring it to you afresh. God, I make these words my prayer. Would you meet me in it? Church, why don't you stand to your feet? In a moment, we're gonna finish the service with a song of praise. I'll invite Penny up in a a second to close us out. But before we do, I I pray that you would leave here today with a, a clear encouragement that God wants relationship with you. But like every other relationship in your life, it is built not just through the moments of of big expressions of love, but consistent dedication. That's not earning God's love. That's not convincing Him to love you. That's just the way that relationships work. So God is offering you relationship. You don't have to. But He's saying, I love you and I wanna know you. And my experience has been when I push in and create more space for Him, something in me is grateful for that. Something in me changes that I am better for that. So what might the daily, ordinary orderings of your life look like? Embracing fidelity. And then set yourself up for a win. Do what Jesus did. It doesn't have to be you thinking of some profound thing to say to Jesus at six in the morning. It can be intentionally working through a pre-written prayer. Maybe even the Lord's Prayer. God, you are my Father in heaven. You are holy and set apart. God, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done in my life that I could partner with you on earth as it is in heaven? What would it look like to mull that over for five minutes? 
I would dare to suggest that maybe from mulling that over for five minutes, you might find that some prayers, spontaneous as they might seem, might start to well up out of you. God, I've also got this to say, and I want to thank you for this. And actually, I remember this thing that I'm praying for. And God, I'm really feeling this. Whatever it might be, that we would be a house of prayer. But we are who we are. This is not going to be a house of prayer if we are not a people of prayer. And so what does pursuing prayer look like for you? God wants relationship with you and he loves you. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, we thank you for the blessing that is relationship with you, that you have called us to it, that you have come to make a way where, where there not was no way and, and that we don't get to just respond to you once, but we get to live from a place of response. God, I pray today that, that these ideas, that these words would not put a weight on us of expectation, but would bring a freedom of, of opportunity. God, in what ways could I engage with you and you? God, I pray as we go from here, seeking to see your face a little bit differently, a little bit clearly in our day-to-day -day lives, that you say that when we seek you, you are not hard to find. God, I pray your mercy over us. Maybe even as we, as we start this journey, as we take our first baby steps, would you be with us in your grace? Would you enable those moments? As we draw close to you, would we find you in unexpected and wonderful ways? Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.